We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 15 this evening. So let's take our Bibles and turn there. I'm going to get mine ready as well. Or my notes ready, rather. Psalms chapter 15. It begins with a question. Someone asked me this morning what was the secret code behind the sermon title. A Q and A and A. And I explained that it's no secret, it's just the outline of the message. Psalms 15 is a question and an answer and something else that starts with A. I suppose we'll find out, we'll make it a little suspenseful, so we'll find out what that final A is as we approach the end of the sermon. But a Q and A and A is what we find in Psalms 15, and As I said, it starts with a question. I don't know if you've ever had someone ask you a difficult question or been asked a number of questions or a question that you might not know the answer to. Sometimes children uh, will ask difficult questions. My children have asked me things like, why is the sky blue? I don't really know. Has something to do with the atmosphere? But do I really know? Why couldn't it be green? I have no idea. Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? I don't know. It just is wet. That's just the way it is. And sometimes questions are difficult. Sometimes questions are difficult to find the answers to. And David in this psalm begins by asking a question, and the question itself is actually bit of a difficult question, uh, and even the answer is hard to maybe decipher, even though it's not a secret code. It is a somewhat difficult psalm to dive into. It's a somewhat difficult psalm to, to fully uh, understand. So, uh, by way of introduction to the psalm, I want to familiarize you with just a couple of things. First of all, I want you to know or maybe understand or think that the Psalms are not just scattered into the Bible um, willy-nilly. It's not just Psalm 15. You know, it's not like they take the hymnal that we sing from and just throw things in and say, give it a number. There is some structure to the book of Psalms. It's actually organized into four different books. And there's a little bit of reason behind what goes on. And so it is important uh, to know the context of this psalm. David gets to Psalms 15 here just after Psalms 14. Which doesn't necessarily ask a question, although uh, some of the psalms before it do. Psalms 14 is the very popular psalm that you're familiar with that says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Psalms 14 approaches this idea of foolishness. It approaches the idea of uh, not just foolishness. It's not, it's not atheism as much as it's this sense of practical atheism. It's not necessarily addressed to the guy who says, I don't believe in God, as much as it's addressed to the Christian believer who sometimes says, is God really there? Is God really watching? The practical atheist. And so it's foolish. 
And so David, after this thought that he sees in Psalms chapter 14, this person who has rejected God, he goes to the question in Psalms 15, and he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And so it's important that we see this, uh, just the place that Psalms 15 is in. In fact, Psalms 15 is what we call in maybe Hebrew poetry, is, it's called a chiasm. How many of you ever heard that word before, a chiasm? It's, it's, a, it's a structure, a, a literary device that's used in Hebrew poetry. It's used in lots of places, actually. But uh, it's important for us to note as we approach this psalm that it's a chiasm. Because if we, we misunderstand that, we'll miss some of the key elements of this psalm. A key, chiasm always points to something. So let me explain to you real quick as we jump into Psalms 15 what a chiasm is. I took a definition off of a website called uh, gotquestions.org. It's a great website if you've never used it. It's full of good questions about theology. They have a good app. I recommend it highly. The definition that they give here is a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in the passage. Each idea is connected to its reflection by a repeated word, often in a related form. Uh, the, the term chiasm comes from the Greek word, or the Greek letter rather, chi, which looks like an X. And sometimes when you see a chiasm written out in the structure, it'll kind of look like a funnel with the main point at the bottom. So you'll have the, the mirror image on each side, or sometimes they'll write it this way, the center, and then go down. It's indented, it's, it's labeled structurally sometimes A, B, C with the, the, the central theme, and then C, B, A, those kinds of things. Um, and it can be a little complex to understand, but it's important that we know that Psalms 15 is a chiasm as we jump into it because we don't want to miss the main point. Uh, some chiasms are quite simple. The phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's a chiasm. It's a mirror image as it repeats itself. The words uh, going and tough, they're repeated there. That's an ABBA kind of structure of the chiasm, okay? And so what we're going to see in this psalm is the chiasm ABXBA, where it points to this thing in the middle. But before we see that in this psalm, I just want to point out that not only is this psalm a chiasm, this psalm is a chiasm among chiasms. And again, this is just some introductory material that hopefully is not boring you, but it might be. And if so, I apologize. But we'll be moving on to the next point momentarily. Psalms 15 is a chiasm. You might want to write a note even in your Bible if you're doing so. Psalms 15 steps to Psalm 16, which then steps to Psalm 17, and the center of the chiasm that Psalms 15 finds itself in is Psalms 19. And so Psalms 15 actually has its mirror in Psalms 24. My computer's doing all sorts of weird stuff. It's because I just realized the mouse is in my pocket. It's like, what is going on? Here we go. <laughs> Okay, so Psalms 15, its mirror 
repeats its, its mirror image is in Psalms 24, which also asks a similar question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Same question is found in Psalms 24. Psalm 16, its mirror is Psalms 23 and vice versa. And the central theme of the chiasm is chapter 19. Now, we're not going to look at all these chapters today, okay? But it's just fascinating if you're a geek or a dork like myself. If you say this is boring, that's okay. We're going to move on. So let's examine the question. This question that starts at this chiasm. The question that David asks, just as a child sometimes might ask a difficult question, David asks a difficult question. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? This question is a striking question. It's a interesting question. It's actually a chiasm or a parallel as it states twice, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? You notice it repeats. It mirrors itself, okay? And so the question, who shall sojourn? These words are very interesting to me. The word sojourn parallels with the word dwell. The word tent parallels with the word holy hill. Now, we're going to observe what these words are to unlock the idea uh, that's behind this question. The word that's used for sojourn in this verse, in its Hebrew, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, um, it's translated as abide in various places in the Old Testament. It means to turn aside to sojourn, to seek hospitality. Who shall sojourn? The idea is this. This person does not belong here, okay? This person does not belong here. He has turned aside. He has entered the tent and sought hospitality. But he doesn't belong here. You've probably heard several times throughout the Old Testament Many people being spoken of as sojourners. Moses, uh, sojourner. There's lots of illustrations. The people of Israel in Egypt, they sojourned in Egypt. They didn't belong in Egypt. The people of Israel, as they sojourned, okay, is this idea of this word. It um, is interesting that David uses this word in this context. Because he's trying to point something out. He's trying to point out that this person that's in the tent doesn't really belong in the tent. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, Abraham sojourned in Egypt, Lot in Sodom, uh, Moses in Midian, me in this tent. (laughs) That's the picture that David's kind of presenting here with this strangely difficult question, but it's not just that. It's not just that this person is an alien, but this person, as the question proceeds on to say, who shall dwell on your holy hill? The word that's used here for dwell in its Hebrew meaning, it means to settle down. It means to lie down and take rest, to literally establish residence. 
It's often translated as dwell, to live, to settle, to inhabit, to stay, to make, or remain. Okay? It's important that we catch what these words are saying. David is saying, he, he's not asking a question of who may be admitted into your tent. He's asking a question of who may dwell in your tent? Who may live and abide and remain in your tent? You see the word that's used here for tent, you've probably heard it as well. Um, I think somebody mentioned, I think just last week, John, speaking of he came and tabernacled among us. He came and dwelt among us. The word that's used there is he pitched his tent among us. The picture that the Israelites will see when they read this verse and they hear this verse, they will, their minds will immediately be brought to the tabernacle, the temple that God or that David built for God or Solomon built for God. And the, the people of Israel built before the tent. They built this tent here to worship God, this beautiful tent. And here, someone kind of comes along and walks into the tent. They don't really belong in the tent. And they sit down as if they live there, and they dwell there, and they're not going anywhere. That's kind of the picture that David is painting, which is a little bit strange, Right? I almost, uh, when I got here today, I actually thought about like just sitting in the choir loft and holding an instrument the whole time we sang music, you know? So you guys, when you're sitting here, are like, what is, what is this guy doing? He's nuts. <laughs> he doesn't belong there. But I just sit there and act like I belong, you know, with the guitar or something. And of course, I probably would have gotten thrown out. <laughs> but that's kind of the picture, Okay. David is asking, who belongs in your house? Oh, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's interesting because this is a very intimate question. The picture is a very intimate one. Who can reside or be at home with God? Who can rest in your tent? One of the commentaries uh, that I read notes this. He says the rest of this psalm shows that God's closest neighbors dwell on his holy mountain as welcome guests. On your holy mountain, uh, Psalms 2.6 says, God, I am, chose Zion for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. This is God speaking as he has pitched his tent here. And the people approach the tent to worship him. And these people don't really belong. They're aliens. 
They're sojourners. Another commentary I read referred to this person as a resident alien. Another good description. Imagine the thought, you know, who can approach God's holy temple? Who can dwell on your holy hill? The first line speaks of the tent. The second line, holy hill, speaks more of a permanent dwelling as if God has built his temple on the mountain, the holy hill of Zion, and that's how it's portrayed in Psalms 24, the mirror passage. But David uh, gives us an answer to this person who has kind of moved into the tent and doesn't really belong. He's given us an answer. So we see the Q and we see the A. We're about to examine the A, but before I do, let me read this quote from Spurgeon. He says, The unthinking many imagine it to be a very easy matter to approach the Most High. And when professedly engaged in his worship, they have no questionings of heart as to their fitness for it. But truly humbled souls often shrink under a sense of utter unworthiness and would not dare to approach the throne of the God of holiness if it were not for him, our Lord, our advocate, who can abide in the heavenly temple because his righteousness endures forever. And we're going to see that as we see the answer that God gives us here in Psalms 15. And in some ways, it's a bit of a interesting answer. You see, I think that we would expect to see the answer to say some sort of ritual, perhaps. Some sort of things that you might have done. The answer to the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Many of us even, we would think, oh, what do we have to do to be welcome in your holy temple? What is it? Is there some sort of ritual, something I can do? Can I pay alms? Can I, you know, help old ladies across the street? What is it that I do? And what we see that is given as an answer, we see that the answer is nothing about what you do. Instead, it's something different altogether. But again, in some ways, it's a little difficult for us to see unless we understand the chiasm uh, that that the, the, the original Hebrew language is written in, in this place. And so the answer is actually written in 10 parts. It's 10 little responses. It's a decalogue. It's a uh, rehashing, perhaps even, of 10 commandments. It's a little 10, 10 little pithy lines that explain it. But in the middle, we see the answer to this question. Let's read it together, verse 2 through 5. It says... The answer is this, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Well, that's not a very comforting answer, <laughs> is it? Because the reality is this. 
when I hear that, I know that's not me. Somebody told me last week they look forward to hearing about the blameless man. Uh, and that's the reality is when we read this, where does, where, the, the thought we're supposed to say is, oops, that does not describe me, at least my nature. By nature, I am not that person. But let's look real quick just at the chiasm that's in here so we can kind of understand what's happening. Um, the body of this, as I said, uh, is, is often referred to as a decalogue, ten little statements, ten little stipulations. One uh, a scholar, Hebrew scholar, um, believes in his commentary, Bruce Waltke, um, he believes that this psalm was a psalm that was sung as they approached the temple, as they approached to worship, and they would say and cry out with this um, question to the priest before coming in who may come in and it's this song that they sing and he would respond back with this answer and the children would sing it together and he talks about in his commentary that maybe they counted off each one of these things um you know as they sung it and I don't know if that's true but he 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 really he really convinced me in his commentary um that 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 may be the case verse 2 has three things that he replies with. He who walks blamelessly. Two, and does what is right. Three, and speaks the truth in his heart. Verse three then says, who does not slander with his tongue? That's the fourth thing. And does no evil to his neighbor? That's the fifth thing. Nor takes up a reproach. That's the sixth. And I'm running out of fingers. But the seventh says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But, he says, And that's the key. It's not really clear in our English translation. The word but there signifies a change in that chiasm. If you're taking notes, you could circle the word but and put an X next to it because that's the key to what he's pointing at. He says, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And that phrase there, fear the Lord, is a phrase that would capture the minds quickly of any Israelite reading this. Any Hebrew or Jewish person would know that this is the person who has submitted himself to the covenant that God has given. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is the the central thing happening in this chiasm who swears to his own hurt that's the eighth one who does not put out his money at interest that's the ninth and does not take a bribe against the innocent that's the tenth one so what does god a consuming fire against the wicked require of his worshipers Not surprisingly, in a true covenant theology, so unlike pagan religion, the answer pertains to spirituality and ethics, not ritual. The structure of this chiasm lands on that phrase, it is the person who fears I am. In fact, the phrase before that, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, the word that's used there for vile, it, we might think that's a person who's, who's dirty or, you know, a dirty old man or something like that, if we're going to try to imagine what we might think. But in the Hebrew, the, the word that's used there for vile is to signify that a vile person is a person who has rejected the covenant of God. 
And so again, as this chiasm approaches and narrows onto that, that central theme in the middle here, the person who fears the Lord, the person who has submitted himself to this covenant. Let's talk about this covenant real quick. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know... Uh, To me, that is such a beautiful verse. I hope that you see it. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the person who has surrendered, submitted their life to the Lord. This is a picture of, of course, a Christian, a person who knows God as their Savior. But back up a little bit, it says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The word that's used here for blameless, very interesting word. And it, again, is part of this chiasm that we see Blameless is not a word, well, in, in the English, of course, we would assume it, it, it means you're without blame. But in this context, and in the Hebrew, it's not so much a person that is, it's a, it's a legal term. In other words, it's a person who is guilty of sin, but yet, because of their standing before God, they are righteous. They are right in their standing before him. Uh, the phrase, the, the, the verse, let me grab my mouse and pull up a verse here. Uh, the word blameless here is interesting. Oh, we're going to, all right. There we go. The word that's used as blameless here is used in several places in the Bible. You might think, (laughs) well, we're blameless. (laughs) Job 1.1 says that Job was blameless. Again, it's not a person that's without sin. It's a person with a right standing before God. I want you to see um, how this verse is connected. As I mentioned, the chiasm shows Psalms 19 as the center. 
And so, look, if you have your Bibles, turn over there to Psalms chapter 19. The law of the Lord, verse 7, is perfect. That's the same word, blameless. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It goes down to verse 13. It says, or verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock and my Redeemer. So the answer is he who walks blamelessly. But we understand that that is not something I do on my own. I don't walk blamelessly. When I read this, the point, the point that we're supposed to take when we read these questions, uh, as, as Kidner points out in his commentary, it's supposed to prick our conscience. I'm supposed to say, no, that's not me if it weren't for Christ himself. And so we read these statements here. And see how they, they, they talk about this person who's blameless, who does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. This is a person of integrity. A person who understands that, that they're a sinner. That they're honest with himself in their heart. He speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He speaks honestly about his neighbor who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. His eye is an eye that sees wickedness around him, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But this person honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. This is a picture of the characteristics, perhaps, of the heart of a Christian. But doing these things doesn't allow you to enter the holy temple. It's because you have been accepted and allowed into the temple that you do these things, is what David is saying. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The answer is a person The person's heart will be characterized by these things. But this person has submitted their heart to you and said, I fear you. Surrendered to that covenant uh, that we, we saw momentarily ago. But what is that final letter A? That final letter A, it's an assurance. 
You sometimes we ask a question, as I mentioned before at the beginning, a child might ask a question and why is water wet? Why is the sky blue? And we give an answer and, and, and that answer may not be the most understandable or may not be acceptable. We know the sky is blue because of the atmosphere, but we really don't know why it's blue and not green. And we're given that, that, that answer and we sometimes just have to accept it. God, in his grace and in his love, he gives us this answer here that this person's heart, this person's life will be characterized by these things. And then he closes with the final point. He gives us an assurance. It's almost as if he kind of holds you up in his arms and says, I love you. It's going to be okay. Here's the assurance that you have. Here's what it says. He who does these things shall never be moved. What we see here is this gracious assurance that God gives after answering this difficult question. He who does these things shall never be moved. It is such an important promise that he gives. The word that's used here for move is a word that it's actually, if you study the book of Psalms and, and the wisdom literature, you see it's something that's, that's dis- displayed all throughout wisdom literature as this moving, this tottering, this shakiness, this unsecurity is something that has shown that, that the, the, the lost, the sinner is characterized by their life. We see it in uh, chapter 10, just a few chapters before this. He says they'll never be moved. They'll never totter. They'll never shake. They'll never slip or fall or be overthrown. Think or imagine or recall maybe a time as you've walked somewhere and you're shaky, you know, maybe on a trail, a hike, or on a, a little bridge or something like that. There's times where, where you're walking and it's, it, you're nervous, you know. You, I got to be careful where I step. And, and you're watching these kind of things, right? I mean, we've all been there. The picture that he says is, is to you, my child, this person who I welcome into my tent. You will never be shaken. And so he concludes with this fascinating promise, this fascinating assurance. He who does these things shall never be moved. Psalm 16, 8 says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Isaiah says, the earth is utterly broken The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. Okay? Picture this. I'm unstable. He says further in Isaiah, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Psalms 46, 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Psalm 62, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Psalms 55, cast your burden on the Lord. 
And he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And in Proverbs 10.30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. This psalm paints an interesting picture. A question, an answer, and an assurance. The question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? I don't know if you noticed the, the word who throughout this passage. Who, 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 over and over and over. Who? It's as if the psalmist is asking this question and we see, you might look to your neighbor while we're all here together. Who are you? Why are you here? And your neighbor looks to you. Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you in the tent? And God says it's okay. Not, Not only can you come in and be admitted, you can come in, sit down, camp out, and stay. You are welcome in my tent. The reality is my heart says, I'm not welcome. I am not worthy. But God says, come, you're welcome. Fear the Lord. Hear the covenant. As a child of God, he says, come. And he embraces his child and says, you are welcome here. And you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. Welcome to my child. That really is the picture of this psalm. And it's a picture that we should be amazed at. It's a picture that as we take communion in just a moment, that we are amazed at. Come. Eat with me, commune with me, dine with me, celebrate with me, even though I'm not, I'm a sojourner. I don't belong here. You don't belong here. None of us belongs here. But God, in his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and I. And because of Christ's righteousness, we can come and sit at his feet, sit at his table, and dine with him. Spurgeon says, no storm shall tear him from his foundations. No storm shall drag him from his anchorage or uproot him from his place. Like the Lord Jesus, whose dominion is everlasting, the true Christian shall never lose his crown. He shall not only be on Zion, but he shall be like Zion, fixed and firm. He shall dwell in the tabernacle of the Most High, and neither death nor judgment shall remove him from his place. 
let us delight in that today. I would encourage you, take some time to read this psalm. Go through the whole series from Psalms 15 to 24, focusing on Psalm 19 in the middle. You'll be delighted if you do. But tonight, this one psalm reminds us that even though we're not welcome here, as we are welcome here, we want to say, oh, you're welcome, welcome to church, you know. But we don't belong because of our sin. And God says, come in, my child. Be a part of my family. Rest here. Be secure here. I will hold you. We can delight in that today. And that's what Psalms 15 is to remind us of.